episode 62 with dancer and artistic director Robert Battle. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with dancer, choreographer, and artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, Robert Battle. What started as a dream, Robert's life has morphed into a legacy of innovation, influence, and leadership as a contemporary voice in dance. Robert Battle was born in Jacksonville, Mississippi, and was raised in the historic Black neighborhood of Liberty City in Miami, Florida. Now, this is the same Liberty City that birthed our episode 10 guest, writer Terrell Alvin McCraney, and his Oscar-winning Moonlight co-author, Barry Jenkins. There's something about Liberty City. But back to Robert. As a child, performing arts played a vital role in his upbringing, which was largely shaped by his mother, the church, and his community. Together, they instilled in him that the arts was not just something you do, but is a way of being. A childhood friendship led Robert to learn martial arts as a means to defend himself, which became a gateway into his love of dance, giving Robert the confidence, discipline, and flexibility for movement which would carry him through the many expansive chapters of his life. Attending the New World School of the Arts, a performing arts magnet school in downtown Miami, Robert went on to get his Bachelor of Fine Arts from the prestigious Juilliard School in New York City. Following his time at Juilliard, he joined the Parsons Dance Company and shortly thereafter founded his own dance company, Battleworks. Currently, Robert holds the legacy of renowned choreographer and dancer Alvin Ailey and his company, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, the largest modern dance company in the nation. For more info on Mr. Ailey, check out episode 24 with legendary dancer Carmen DeLavalade, who took Mr. Ailey to his first dance class when they were teenagers. In today's episode, Robert explores what it means to lead with legacy in mind. We talk through the lessons learned from fully immersing oneself in their craft and the importance of building a community. Today's episode is sure to leave you inspired, so be sure to share your most motivational moments with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. You can also view this episode and catch up on others by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. And you can find this and more content over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the legendary Robert Battle. All right, here we go. So, Mr. Robert Battle, welcome, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Thank you. Nice to be here. Looking um, forward. I'm so happy uh, that we were able to finally get together, um, at least on this platform. We've worked together before, but yes. it's a pleasure to to really sit down and have a little tête-à-tête. Um, but to begin, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Oh, my mother, uh, Desi Williams. Um, 
you know, she was a big part of my inspiration to be in the arts in the first place. Now, as we get into the story, you'll understand that my mother is really my cousin, that I was raised by my great aunt and uncle, which were her parents. Uh, and so when my great aunt passed, in 1979, she took on the role of mother, but she was the one versed in piano and singing, teaching English and all of that. So that kind of rubbed off on me. So, yeah. Gotta all right. It. This one is to Desi. Um, and this may be a related question, but who was the first person to see you? Hmm. Wow. That's a good one. There were a few people, but I'm trying to think earliest uh, that I can remember. Um, gosh, I would say that it was teachers. Mm -hmm. And a score of teachers. Certainly, uh, one teacher that I, I always think about, um, many who took interest in me, uh, but one teacher in particular I always think about is Adelaida Munez. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. She was a ballet teacher. Um, and in Liberty City, when I was at Miami Northwestern Senior High, uh, she had to end her career it, with the Caracas Ballet. Uh, she was a principal dancer and she had a slip disc. Many dancers know uh, how critical that can be in, in, as a career ending injury often. Mm. So there she was, 25 or 26, Liberty City, you know, and we thought everybody was white if they weren't black. So in my mind, then think about, you know what I'm saying? And here she is at Miami Northwestern. <laughs> and she just saw something in me, in my dancing. I just really started dancing. And she made sure that she gave me extra classes, like when we had President's Day or something, you know, that nobody was celebrating. She would like <laughs> come in and give me a private lesson. She made sure that I had class ballet class after school. So she took me to uh, was a, a ballet school uh, and she paid for the classes. But it was always fun for us because she didn't want any of the ballet world in Miami that, of course, knew her. Uh, she didn't want them to know that she had returned. Right. So kind of makes sense that she was... <laughs> They certainly wouldn't know if she was in Liberty City, right? <laughs> These folks, <laughs> you okay. know what I'm saying? But when she would take me to the classes where she knew the teachers and she knew the owners of the studio because they had big careers too, she would park around the corner in front of the Winn-Dixie and I would get out of the car and I would walk to the class. So that, And I was not allowed to say why I knew about the school, you know, all of that. And she just paid for my class car. And that kind of, it was, 
fascinating because she just saw something and she just latched on. Wow. Wow. What I, what I love about that story is, you know, many things. One, um, what it takes to, to empower like teachers and instructors to really take initiative in the education yes. you know, of students. I think that's something that we're really wrestling with in classrooms today, actually. It's a very mm-hmm. kind of pressing um, moment that we're in. Um, but then also kind of reframing what homework looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes, and you know, me, I'm actually currently kind of in school myself, but what does it mean to actually be pushed? Yes. And that the pushing isn't punishment, but mm. the pushing is because th- there's something more that they see there. Yes. Um, and they're and they're working it out and right. kind of forcing you to work it out. Um, but let's 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 open up and then and then come back down to Liberty City. So, you know, we just kind of hopped into this conversation. Uh for those of you listening, this is Robert Battle, who is the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Um, dancer, choreographer, curator, and I i actually consider you, you know, really like one of our futurists, actually. When I look at your body of work um, and the way in which you understand the body, of specifically the Black body in space in relationship to music, it, it the references that you bring in are quite galactic, uh, if I could mention that. Um, so I just wanted to like get that in so people knew mm-hmm. like like this this man is is a scion of of so much of the black imagination uh continuum. But to 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 kind of bring it back, you started with the story uh of your cousin Desi, um, who raised you after the passing of your great aunt back in Florida. Um, and you were born in Jacksonville, but then you moved down to Liberty City, which is a historic black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. in Miami, Florida. Yes. Like and what's interesting about Liberty City, we've actually interviewed a couple of people on this podcast from Liberty City, Terrell wow. Alvin McCraney, uh one of the writers of Moonlight, but then also, you know, Barry Jenkins. Like there's this incredible incredible community and particularly black creative community mm-hmm. that has come out of this very small part of Miami. Yes. Like what what was the environment in Liberty City? Like what what was around? Like what was shaping this this kind of crucible of black creative talent? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, certainly, we were well aware to a certain extent, you know, of the issues, right? in uh, underserved communities. Um, we were aware that if you went on one street, you were safe. If you went on another street, which was right next door to that street, you might not be, you know, that was, I say that to build it up to, I mean, even walking to school back, you know, when we used to walk to school, you know, before everybody had a bus, but we walked to school, you knew like school was not far from my home, but you knew like to walk on this street, then you turn and go down, don't go down that street. That's where some dealings are going on, some shifty characters. So go this way, go that way. Stop at the frozen cup house. Because see, that's something that folks know. 
<laughs> from from Liberty City. There was always somebody who a couple of houses where they sold frozen cups, which was just frozen fruit punch. You know, but for a nickel, you get your frozen cup in a styrofoam and, cup. In a styrofoam cup, right? <laughs> yes. And you kind of chew off the cup as you eat. <laughs> Ooh, I can just. Um, but just all of that kind of informs your creativity. For me, I guess I never thought of it in the full sense of Liberty City. It was just what went on in my house, you know, that my mother played piano for the church that we went to. So there was tradition. It was Wachter Temple, African Methodist, Episcopal Zion Church. So we had a Kimball, little piano at home, and she would practice. If she jumped to the piano, then people would come in and we'd start singing. One person, another person would join in. You know, first song she taught me was That's Entertainment. You know, and we just, it, it was like a part of my upbringing. We'd mm. sing spirituals, we'd sing hymns, you know, show tunes, all kinds of things. Um, that kind of gave me the notion that the arts, I even think of it as performing arts. I just started that that's what people did, right? You know, uh, there were occasional family feuds as well, all informing my, what was to become my art form, dance. Mm. You know, all of that is in my choreography in some way or another. Um, some of the abrupt falls to the floor. You know, I was born completely bow-legged. Yeah, I was born bow-legged. And luckily, my great-aunt and uncle got me braces that had to be put on my legs at night so to help them straighten out. It was special shoes and that whole bit. And they say I would try to get up, but then I'd fall <laughs> on my face because I had on these wacky shoes. So it's all in the it's all in the work. People always say, "Why are all those falls in your work?" Well, it's all kind of coming out of somewhere back here where I don't even remember uh, mm. consciously. It's just there, but also the support of the community. Right? It was like I had teachers and mentors everywhere um, mm. in Liberty City. Uh, everybody in the church, you know, having you do the poem for Easter, you know, uh, it, it was just around you. And then like Miss Muniz, there are so many other examples of teachers, Mrs. Williams, uh, I could go on and on, uh, Veronica Swindell, um, so many people just sort of seeing something in you and pushing you forward. So I don't know. I think there was just something that some of us knew the world was against us in a way mm. um, and mm. that we would have to work harder than anybody else. Nobody had to tell us that we could see that, you know, mm. we could see the folks that, that didn't make it. It was right there. It wasn't just something we saw on television, you know, it was right there. Somebody I grew up with first grade, here I am in, high school they're already dead you know what I mean and so that kind of thing we knew we were up against it so we 
pushed against that, right? And still to this day, that's part of my fuel that keeps me going. Wow. And, you know, to, to even double tap on, on Liberty City, and the reason I ask is because, you know, we're, we're also interested and the ways in which design shapes our lives, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, even you speaking about, you know, these sidewalks that you walked around, you know, the the buildings, the the housing projects, right? This is all informing um, how your body moves through space, how you understand yourself in relationship, you know, to your environment. Um, and we have uh, we had a conversation earlier <laughs> with an architect who, who who says that Robert Moses may be the father of hip hop, right? Because of the ways in which he shaped the city, because it's actually the housing projects that created the environment for yes. the birth of hip hop. But yes. you know, double tapping on Liberty City, it also started as a housing project in nineteen. 19- 23 um and fast forwarding you know as as an overflow from the overtown neighborhood mm-hmm. of Miami which is also a historically black neighborhood in Miami um but then you know you were born in 72 but there was something that happened in 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 80 1980 so you were 8 at the time and this was the Liberty City riots mm-hmm. um and this was uh, a riot that took place after the it sounds it's it's interesting the way that history rhymes, right? But this was off of the acquittal of four officers who had beat um, an insurance broker actually to death at a traffic stop, mm-hmm. and so um, and I believe this there were sixteen people who were killed, um, and it was the deadliest riot that took place up until the nineteen ninety two L A riots um, it, with Rodney King. So. As an eight-year-old, what what are you seeing in this moment, right? And how is that shaping your understanding of the world? You know, this is so apropos that you bring this up because, you know, I just talked with uh, Barry Jenkins uh, a few months ago. And he, it was interesting what we remembered about that time, right? And it may have not been that there were a couple of riots, but that I think is the one you're talking about. Um, and a lot of it was sensory, mm. you know, as opposed to just the fear, the anger. Certainly that was all around you. Um, but we remembered like the smell. I remember the smell because of there was a tire company, and I think it was Michelin Tire Company. My grandfather drove a Pinto. I call him, you have to understand, I go fluid with, you know, he's my great uncle, but I call him my grandfather sometime. But we all called him daddy, but he was like my father. So it, it, will, it throws people off, and it always was hard to explain. But, you know, we would always, 54th Street, which is in a lot of, songs, you know, down on 54th Street, you know, Whitney, I think, and some references it. That was the big, that's the big street, Liberty City. Uh, and I grew up on 55th Street, so I know it very well. And we drive down 54th Street all the time. And sort of as the riots were cooling to a certain extent, this tire company was still on fire and nobody was putting out the fire, you know, 
and all you could smell was the rubber, you know, that sense mm. of it. And I just remember that. I don't know. That's just such a, uh, I think for many reasons, one is such a strong smell as you can imagine Two, the fact that nobody was putting the fire out. Now mm. as a kid, I grew up wanting to be a fireman. In fact, every Christmas I would ask for a fire truck, even before, you know, uh, these riots, that was my thing. I was like, that's what I want to do. I love the, the get up. I got the hat, you know, the thing, the red truck. I was like, yes. <laughs> and so, so the fact that nobody was putting out the fire, I think really was shocking to me. Hmm. But I think metaphoric in a way that nobody's putting out the fire, right? Hmm. And then what I remember is there were certain relatives there was a store across the street called Zares, um, and they got clothes. You know, you know. Uh, so <laughs> there was all of a sudden all of these clothes in a cart in the house, but still with those things that you know, security things on them. And I remember trying to figure out how to get the the clip off. You know what I mean? So you can wear the shirt. I mean, but it, it it wasn't like this big deal. It was just, hey, we got some shirts. You know what I mean? Like it for me, it was um interesting because I did I understood, but I didn't understand. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like civil unrest, riots, you know, that's still a sort of misunderstood concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't even like to say riots. They like to say civil unrest. They, you know what I mean? Um, and so that's what I remember. I, I, it, it just sort of struck me as like, wait, this feels like lawlessness, except this is because of lawlessness, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> so it's like mm. trying to, as a kid, the things that you're taught not to do and then there's these things happening, but they're happening because of the injustice uh, and the sense of powerlessness. It was really quite um, illuminating mm. to try to process that as a kid. And you know, in our family, you didn't talk about much. Do you know what I mean? Like, for instance, I mean, we didn't go around saying, I love you, you know? Mm. Here's something to eat. Mm. You know, that's, mm. that's it. Hey, boy, you do do good now. You know, I mean, it was that kind of thing. It was understood. We didn't really even hug, mm. you know. So we certainly wouldn't have sat around talking about the riots and what it meant and how to feel about it and how are you processing it. It just happened. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, boom. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and thank you for sharing that. Like, I think, you know, for me, what, you know, we we are the result of of our environments, right? Yeah. And so really kind of, really kind of laying this groundwork uh, for, for this arc. Um, and, you know, and there's something you mentioned earlier, this idea of community that has stuck with me so much um 
even in your speaking and even in the research, this idea of community continues to show up over and over and over and over again. What does it mean to be in community? What is the role of community? What's the role of the citizen? You know, what do we owe to each other um, mm. in, in our communities? And then also thinking about, you know, your eventual um, you know, landing at, you know, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, which is which internally and externally is community, yes. right? Like we, we've known each other for a while. Yes. Um, you know, we've worked together, you know, you've been there for a decade. I think I was there when you came in, yeah. if not shortly thereafter. So there is this ongoing theme of community that I think, you know, um, strings throughout your life and career. But to, to, kind, of, to kind of chart this journey, so I, I find it fascinating, one, that you wore braces for years and there was this, notion that you may not even be able to walk right and then the very thing that you that ends up taking you out of liberty city right are those very legs mm-hmm. yeah, you know and so you know i know that you you know grew up you know singing you were a soprano in the choir but that led to something right like you know there were some boys that were picking on you with a voice like this at 12 and you had a friend that stuck up for you and his dad was a martial artist. Yes. And so what is happening now? So here's the community (laughs) coming in again. Yes. And what you're a martial artist. He was like a black belt. Yeah. Third degree. (laughs) Do you want me to? Yeah. Yeah. Please, please, please don't jump on this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I never thought about it that way. The way you just, um, contextualize the notion of community and how the thing that you need shows up. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it shows up if you pay attention, you know? Mm. Oh, because James, and, and then, you know, you know how there are names. I mean, and I don't mean to, to I'm not going in that direction. But like a novel, you know, where it's like Bernie Madoff. I mean, could that not be more perfect? I mean, come on. I mean, it had to be. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know. So here's my best friend. His name is James Trimble. Got it. He, he was like, all our, he was my age, but he grew faster than everybody. You know, there's always those certain kids that just have an Adam's apple all, you know, before Mm. everybody else, their voice is deep. He was like, to me, tall as, you know, the tallest person I'd ever seen. He just had a way about him, but gentle, Mm. but everybody was scared of, right. If he got mad and me with my voice talking like this, people picking on me, I I tell James and he'd make him tremble. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know? And then one day I said, James, you know, I couldn't take it anymore. All the bullying and stuff. Um, I said, can you teach me how to fight? He said, I could, you know, but my father, who's also named James, he's a third degree retired black belt. Maybe let's ask him. And that's what we did. We went to him and he said, okay. You know, we'll start classes in their little living room in a duplex, Mm. you know, these little duplexes in Miami, um, in Liberty City, concrete floor. And we would do weightlifting 
you know, bench pressing and all kind of stuff. And I mean, I was scrawny. And then we do martial arts. I had my gi, I had the whole thing. Now, what people did know about me at the time, if I got into something, like I really dove in. Oh, it wasn't enough that I was taking karate. I asked my mom to buy me a ninja suit that I used to walk around Liberty City. There was a across this cross 54th street right across was a flea market and was uh owned and by mostly asian people and they would sell kung fu suits and those flats those karate shoes for cheap i had a kung fu suit i used to walk around liberty city in full kung fu suit nobody did this as this little <laughs> black kid so people I always say I'm not sure if people left me alone because I could fight th- now or because they thought I was, you know, crazy. Ooh. Yeah. yeah that was okay. love. I mean, right, that's, I that's not PC. I, I apologize. I know it's exactly PC, what you, but, yeah, you know, yeah, just, yeah. just a little off. Just, yeah, a little, little like, then I don't know if I want to mess with him. But the martial arts was so important because it gave me confidence because I was very shy. Uh, and it gave me discipline. It gave me flexibility. You know, it was the precursor to what I needed as a dancer. Mm. I didn't know it at the time. You know, um, I was set to sing. You know, I was singing not only in the church choir, but we had a program called Payback. And the acronym is really for Performing and Visual Arts Center. So when I was in junior high school, for instance, you know, you had to audition for whatever your particular discipline would be. At that time, I auditioned for singing. I remember my audition song was um, Whitney Houston, Saving All My Love. Because <laughs> I, I could hit the notes. Yes. And so I got in. So in the morning, you were bust. You had to come in early so that you were bust to this uh high school which happened to be miami northwestern to study whatever your art was and then bus back to your junior high to do your regular school day um and so you know when i decided because my voice was changing my friend who was studying dance i always when we were like during PE, I hated PE because I didn't like sports and I didn't like the competitive thing. And they didn't make us do it. Like, you know, they thought of folks like me, we were just kind of weirdos. So, you know, shy, like to hang out. So my friend and I, he would teach me the ballet steps he was learning. I was learning singing. So he'd say, this is first position. This is what we learned today. And I was learning all this, not knowing, thinking I would be a dancer. I just was interested in what he was learning. And then that next year, when my voice decided to be start <laughs> on its way to become the bass baritone that it is now, I auditioned for Payback for the dance program when I went to high school. And then the rest is kind of history. Yeah, and what, you know, and, and yes, and dance has carried you through. What, what is it about dance? that continues to inspire you? Well, for one, at that time, you know, I studied piano, Mm -hmm. um, obviously was singing, but both of those in martial arts, but in terms of performing, 
I really didn't like singing in front of people. You know, my voice would crack, you know, I, I, because I was so nervous. Mm. Piano, I didn't like playing piano in front of people because, like, I'd do a solo in church and I'd start with, you know, try to remember and then I'd forget. I just couldn't get over there. But dance. Mm. was the thing that I could get lost in. Like, literally, I'd have an outer body, no pun intended, experience moving through space. Mm. And that's when I knew, you know, that this was something I could could do. There was something about it that expressed my musicality, that expressed my lyricism of singing, that expressed, you know, Something, as Mr. Ailey would say, my blood memories, mm. but it expressed something that I knew I didn't know, but I knew when I was dancing, mm. you know, whatever had happened mm. to me, you know, the braces on the legs, the, the sense of breaking free. I mean, it was, it was, it was all, as they say about that tomato sauce, that commercial, <laughs> Well, does it have garlic? It's in there. (laughs) Basil, it's in there. That's how I felt like dance. It was all in there. You know, my mother had a group called the Afro-Americans because she really wanted to be uh, a performer. That was really what she wanted to do. Uh, She wanted to be a star, you know. She, but in those days, um, that it wasn't as viable, right? I mean, depending on where you were and where you came from, like it was more respectable, obviously, to be a teacher. Mm. So she went on to be uh, an English teacher and certainly an English teacher because of all the poetry and all of that that she loved was, was in there, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so, but she did form a group of talented friends. It was like her and uh, three of her friends who had a group called the Afro-Americans. They, and there's some wonderful photos of them in their daishikis and with their calabash and their tambourine and with her Afro. And they would do poetry and song relating to the Black experience. And they'd riff off of each other. And one was a brilliant piano player that just was out. So I used to see, they would be on the front porch where the piano was. And I just sort of, sit quietly in the corner and watch them just go off. You know, I watched my mother transform herself into this being, you know, like one of the poems. And I know I always say this was, I am a black woman by Mari Evans. And just to hear the timbre of her voice change from who I knew as my mother to this, I am a black woman. The music of my song is some sweet arpeggio of tears written in a minor key, and I can be heard humming in the night. I mean, it was like, I, I was like, <laughs> who are these people? And what is this thing that they're tapped into that transforms them? You know, I don't even remember what the question was, but sorry, <laughs> but I'm just sort of getting into the whole how I experienced things at the time that kind of 
fed into. And it was interesting. My mother always said, we never thought you were paying attention. And my mother said she thought that maybe um, I had some sort of challenge, you know, because I was so quiet. And maybe I had some one of those things, you know, whatever, you know, kids have or where they don't talk and, they're, you know, afraid and they're this. And only in more recent times when I speak from the stage and she's like, you remember that poem? You remember you were listening to what we were doing and what I was saying? I was like, yeah, I was recording it. Mm. You know, just just taking it in. So, oh, no, I wasn't talking a lot because I was taking, you know, some people talk so much that they miss, they miss, you know, people who watch a movie and they, they talk through the best parts. I'm like that, that was the most critical moment, not the big bang. It was like that little moment. And you stopped to tell me, oh, uh, did I turn off the stove? I'm like, ah, come on now. <laughs> anyway anyway, i'm gonna shut up i'm going Uh, off (laughs) no i mean but that's it right like i think i think that that is one an earthly truth and then also a spiritual truth Hmm. right about what does it mean to be quiet enough to hear you know yeah um and even now listening to to this story i i see that that the community found you because you were quiet enough to hear mm. you know and listen and so they found you over and over you know and over again and I think this story is so important because it also speaks, you know, even talking about, you know, the karate lessons, you know, this idea of obsession, mm-hmm. this idea of not just the practice, but the becoming, right? Yes. The totality of being. Yes. Um, and, and really just being curious enough mm. to not care what other people thought, right? You know, yeah. And that plays a part in it, right? Like yes. we we are we are constantly echolocating with our environment, our community. Um, but there is something to being so obsessed with a thing that it takes it takes over, right? It, it takes, takes over. over. And this idea of of the ways in which your life was shaping you to be set up for the very thing that would unlock unlock a portal to things that you that were ineffable that yes. you couldn't even really speak to like that English couldn't hold right that that the pen couldn't excise mm-hmm. but but it was a, it was a knowing right and i think that that is what's so rich and you know incredible about this story um which which kind of leads to this this kind of next chapter um you know you get involved in dance but there is there's an encounter you have on a, a school trip um, where you see the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater yes. perform. And yes. I believe you were like 13 at the time? Yeah, 12 yes. or 13. I can never... I've tried to go back to, you know, 
look at the program. program or something. <laughs> look at the tour schedule. I don't know. But yes. But this unlocked something else, right? It showed yes. you something else. Could you, what, what was that? First of all, just in seeing those dancers, right? These beautiful black bodies in what I considered at the time a white space Mm. because it was Miami beach at the time. Right. And then Jack's Jackie Gleason performing arts theater. There you go. So for me, I mean, first of all, I wasn't Miami beach was not what it is today at that time. You know, it still had the, you know, the art deco and all that, but it, it was mainly, you know, you know the blue hairs, you know, it was, it was sort of a retirement feeling about it. Um, and so I just, and I wasn't a beach person, you know, even though I grew up close enough to be, you know, but it just wasn't my thing. But here I was in this theater, seeing this live performance, seeing everybody applaud these incredible dancers. I mean, yes, I'd seen videotape, but it's something about experiencing it in the theater, in the moment. And all of the picking at me because I was a dancer, all the bullying, seeing these men dancing, brave, unapologetically beautiful, graceful, fully themselves, it it forever changed me. It made me lean in more to who I was, who I was becoming, what I wanted to do. Uh, seeing revelations was everything I knew, you know, it was the spirituals, you know, I grew up with that. It was in some ways to me, I heard the poetry that, that, that my mother used to recite and seeing that dance, uh, the sense, I mean, just even the fans, I mean, just the whole thing was like telling my story in a way. And then I understood it. And when I say that a lot of times, I understood it. And sometimes that can seem simplistic, but I was a child that did not like school. Mm-hmm. I'll just be blunt, you know, not, I mean, sorry for the parents who, <laughs> who don't what to do. you I just didn't like the social aspect of it because I was shy mm. and I was picked on mm. by many things you know my it took my body forever to catch up with my head you know <laughs> my head was a perfect circle so people people would call me moonhead egghead people would, I had all the people would come you know, and I had a haircut, spit on their hands, slap me in the back of the head. Like I had all of that stuff. I remember one time, I don't know why, but this girl just took off my shoes and threw them on top of a landing on the school where I couldn't get them. And so I had to wait for my grandfather to come pick me up to drive me home with no shoes. She said, you let somebody take your shoes off and throw them on. The, you know. So I didn't like, didn't like school. So because of that, it was hard to learn in those classes and everything because mm-hmm. I was just, I just, 
So in some ways, I felt that I didn't understand. Then there I go seeing revelations, and I understood. It was unlocked. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I went, "Ah, I got it. You know, there was was something about that thing of understanding that just never left me. Now, never knowing at the time what would happen and what would become, but I don't want to step on the arc of this conversation we're having, but yeah. No, let's, let's step on it. I mean, this is actually a story that we share in common. Um, and I think it's interesting um, that we both find ourselves at this place. So for me, it was my 21st birthday. Um, I was in school in Kansas city and I, I guess Alvin Ailey was in town or maybe they were giving a class at the conservatory uh, at UMKC there in Kansas city. I used to take ballet there at the conservatory. Oh yeah, And, um, and so maybe I went down to see the show, but it was my 21st birthday. Mm. I took myself to see Alvin Ailey by myself and I had never witnessed such beauty mm-hmm. and grace and excellence in my entire life. I was completely dumbfounded. Mm -hmm. And not only did... It's interesting. It wasn't an experience of like, oh, and I'm seeing myself. It was... It was raising the bar Mm -hmm. of what was possible. Mm. I was like, oh, you can be that beautiful Mm -hmm. and that amazing and that disciplined and that excellent. You know, it just raised the bar. And I think it also speaks to the power of representation. I think Mm. we don't, we don't really talk. We do, we have conversations around it, but just how important it is to just show up in spaces, right? You know, as yourself, you know, as your full self, because you don't know what young person is going to be inspired yeah. by by just your your show will to be, right? Right. So to find ourselves actually here, you know, me now shooting the campaigns for Alvin Ailey and you, the artistic director kind of having this full circle moment that it was also our entry point to what was possible mm-hmm. for ourselves. And so how, 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 how do you process that to be here as the artistic director of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, knowing that it was also the catalyst? Yes. You know, sometimes I process it well, and sometimes <laughs> it's overwhelming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you can double tap on that. Yeah, it's like it it there are moments when you know I think we all go through self-doubt, right? You know. I remember the moment when Judith Jamison, you know, through a process, but when she finally chose me and said, you know, um on April twenty-eighth. Uh, 2010, and she said, she grabbed my arms in front of the committee, look into my eyes, it's yours. Now, I had been sort of at that point, you know, being interviewed and going for this position. I want it, I want it, I want it. When she said that, there was a little retreat in me that went right back to that little kid, you know, Mm. sort of, I just remember thinking, what am I going to do? <laughs> That's Judith Jamison. I'm stepping into her role, but she stepped in Alvin Ailey's role. 
I felt like the kid in the audience is if Judy Jamison would when I went to see the performance at that young age, come down to the house and said, Hey, now we want you to lead the company. Like that, <laughs> that, it, it, it was like that to me, like the time in between, I couldn't feel who I'd become. Mm. I just went right back to, wait a minute. I'm just, I'm just here to watch. <laughs> I'm here to behold, not to hold, you know? <laughs> So it was a, it's so it's processing it. You know, it's interesting. I don't, I guess I don't think about it too much because I think I, you know, my legs would lock, Mm. (laughs) you know, I would just be too overwhelmed. But in another way, I know somewhere deep down inside, as I've always known, even as a kid, when I was quiet and all that, that there was some purpose. Mm. There's something I'm supposed to do. Even up and before, my teacher, another great teacher of mine is uh, Jerry Houlihan, who taught me in Miami. But, you know, anyway, we were in New York once. And I had had a smaller company I started, Battleworks. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And one point we went, as we usually do, she was in town and we had Thai food. And she reminds me of this. I had forgotten about it. And she said, now, mind you, there was no, nothing about Judith Jamison retiring. None of that was happening. I'd said a piece on the company, maybe one or two. And she said that I said to her when I was dropping her off at her apartment uh, where she was staying at the time that I said, you know, I just feel like there's something else I'm supposed to do. Something like Alvin Ailey. I just, I feel it. And I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's what I feel. And she reminds me of that. Anytime we have a conversation, remember when you said that so clearly? I'm laying like, I don't really, but I know I did, you know? And so, again, we talk about that sense that, you don't know, but you do know that there's something and that this is my purpose. This is mm. where I'm supposed to be. And there are times where I need to hear that. <laughs> and sometimes Judy will just text me, thank you for what you're doing for this company. When I first started, that was the one thing she kept doing was thanking me. Now, I, I just couldn't really accept that because I'm going, I'm still the kid in this, in the, you know, 34th row, right. At Jackie Gleason's center. You know what I mean? I'm still, so Judith Jamison thanking me for giving me the role of a lifetime. I'm like, no, no, thank you. Thank you. I kept doing that. I would thank her more than she was thinking. You know, I'd try to. At one point, she said, now, I'm going to thank you in text. It was after a performance or after a season or after a gala at City Center. I'm going to thank you, but do not thank me back. Just accept my thank you for 
taking this role. You're doing a phenomenal job and I thank you for carrying it forward. And I didn't, I just said, you're welcome. That was so hard for me. <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> but now sometimes I, I, I lean back on that in order to help me under, know that I'm where I'm supposed to be when things mm. get challenging. You know, I remember, yeah, man. I remember now I know I more really, so why she was really saying felt that, that than um, I did at the time. Know. Oh yeah, no. And as I'm thinking about, you know, Judith Jamison, you know, a star, Mm-hmm. Right, the legend, yes. like the baddest one on the block, <laughs> right. who you used to be at Juilliard, like you know, texting your like, well, not texting your mother, but calling your mother about like a Judith Jamison sighting that you had. Yes, is texting you now to say thank you. I mean, this is. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. When you put it in that context right here i am this you know little kid going over to where ailey was rehearsing at the time to try to take class the summer school and that kind of thing and judith jamison walk would walk by and like you were just like spellbound because i only saw pictures right Mm. of her you know as a kid starting to dance you know i had little cutouts from dance magazines that my ballet teacher miss munez would give me and i would put them and paste them onto this piece of wood and she was one of them so then all of a sudden you see the person you you look watching her i'm trying to see her hands and you know what i'm talking about when you you first see somebody that you're like oh my god look look she has elbows and she, her head turns. She's walking. What is she thinking about? Where is she walking to? She's just probably trying to get to her office. You know what I mean? But as a young person, everything has meaning, right? You know, there's nothing. And going and leaving and calling my mother collect on the payphone to say, I just saw Judith Jamison. And like you said, mm. to go from that through the years... And all of a sudden have her saying, like you said, texting me, like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. And and so you you mentioned this idea, you know, take us from it's yours. Mm. Because here we are 10 years now mm-hmm. of you being the artistic director of Alvin Ailey. And I'd love to to double tap on even just what that means. Um but you know, here you are 10 years later, and there was a retreat to 13-year-old Robert Battle. How did that 13-year-old grow up over the last 10 years? Well... Or what was that process of, of, yeah. of really, I should say, meeting, right? Like meeting that that charge from where you felt, right? That's probably a more accurate way of saying it. What was the process of meeting the charge? Some of it was Judith Jamison saying to me to trust your singular voice. 
That's why mm. I chose you. Mm. Those words just echo in my ear, you know, trust your singular voice. And I made decisions in the rap in the very beginning, some that were sort of different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the audience loved it. Even some of the critics <laughs> loved it. The dancers, I mean, it was the, you know what my biggest fear was at that time? That nobody mm. would show up. Mm. That this was the end of an era, right? Mm. Because I never danced with the company. Judith Jamison was a star with the company. Danced with the company 17 years. I didn't even know Alvin Ailey. Mm. personally never met him they were you know like this and here i come you know and again like you said there's the community within and then there's the other the outside the audiences Mm -hmm. now these two giants you know judy's doing a glissade right she's stepping aside Mr. Ailey, of course, had passed, and here I come. And my worst fear was that opening night at City Center, when I finally started fully, that nobody would be there Mm. because they would have gotten the message that, well, it's over. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had, I mean, it was a little bit unrealistic but i had it so much so that this is what i remember and this will kind of tie in i hope um you know when i first started right i was artistic directed designate meaning you know uh, that judith jamison was still artistic director for a year Mm -hmm, i was mm -hmm. designate you know that kind of thing and so in all the different cities judith jamison would speak opening night and then she'd talk about me you know, and say all these wonderful things about me. And then she'd call me often onto the stage to say something. But I, I, you know, I had Judith Jamison in front of me, right? Mm -hmm. Giving me street cred. Like, yeah, I chose him. What? What what you got to say about it? You know, like I had that and her saying why. So I felt in that way, now I'm, I'm connected to Alvin because of her. I'm connected to the legacy. People know that I'm I'm not an interloper. I have keys. No, I didn't just sneak into the building, you know, that is the Albany American Dance Theater. Like I I had a badge, right, in Mm -hmm, a way. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember Sharon Luckman was the then um, executive director and had been for 20 years at least. Um, I remember when we were planning the first gala, you know, where I was fully in charge in 2011 and we, we were sort of going through the pro- program who was going to speak you know the the board chairs you know that this person speaks and then you come out and i was like what you jamis is not going to say anything they said no it's all you now again retreat <laughs> totally i think i tried to convince her 
I don't know that I tried to convince her because that, that would have been going too far. But I definitely said, really? She's not going to say anything? Like, I was terrified. <laughs> not going to say, like, yeah, here he comes. Anything, <laughs> you know? Like, cause, because I had witnessed so many years the opening night when they would introduce Judith Jamison. And she would come out and she would step to the side, do that hand thing with the fingers and do that bow. And people would go nuts, you know. And I was like, I don't have a hand thing. <laughs> I don't have nothing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I got, I've got no, you know, I didn't, he didn't make a dance, a masterpiece on me called Cry. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I, I was like, Having her speak before me, it was as if I was so apart, right? Mm. And now I felt apart, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, you you step out on faith, and you sometimes do fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I had to remember trust your singular voice. That's the reason I chose you. And there I was, opening night. And I always use humor. Um, I think it's interesting. It comes naturally to me. You know, I always am thinking of something funny to say. Actually, more often than I actually say it, because then you just become, you know, some people just every other sentence is a joke. And you're like, okay, I got it. (laughs) Um, But I use the humor to disarm so that I can get my footing. Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent of me of sometimes saying, look over there. And then now I've got to pull it together. You know, so while you're laughing, I'm laughing too, but I'm also sort of getting my footing, you know, and the laughter helps disarm. Mm. And then now, okay, you're open now. I'm open now. Mm. And then I can express what it is I have to say. So, there's something in it that's not just cheeky, you know, mm. for me, for me personally. Mm. That's sometimes how I had to deal with not being bullied. You know, I could make people laugh. I can make the bully laugh. You know what I mean? I, I, I could sort of make fun of myself. I used to do funny little voices, do all kinds of things. It's just to make people laugh and ingratiate myself so they wouldn't kick my butt. Huh? You know what I'm saying? Like they're like that, that boy, funny. That boy, funny man. Leave him alone, man. He is funny. You know that was fine with me. <laughs> it's it's so like this, like this, this inheritance of of, of sorts. You know, is is magnanimous. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is this is not just a dance company, right? Like this is, you know, you have the George, the Joan Weil Center Center for Dance, which is maybe still the largest center for dance uh, in America. Uh, you have an entire you know, dance company. You have Ailey Two. You have the Ailey School, which is an educational program that is also tied to Fordham. Um, so there is like a degree granting part of that process. You also have the Ailey Extension, which allows an entry point for the citizen into movement and dance. This is an organization, right? And so there is there is this journey, right, of of being a dancer and you know choreographer and having your own company, but 
now this is an organization. Mm-hmm. Like what like what was that transition like to, you know, to or what is it like, right, to hold this artistic vision while also helping to steer an entire organization. This is now uh, a machine of sorts, and yeah. I, I don't—I don't mean the negative connotation of no, that, but it no. is a multivalent, like transformer-like thing. Yeah, that is happening. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you you steer well, and <laughs> sometimes you know you have little bobbles here and there. It's hard to get your arms around the entirety of the organization and but sometimes you you realize that you need to let people do their jobs right because Mm. we you know have uh wonderful co-directors of the ailey school in melanie person and tracy inman there was somewhat sort of came in you know uh, through De- Denise Jefferson at the time, you know, you have um, Lisa, who is um, the head of the extension program, director of the extension program. You, you have these wonderful Nasha Thomas Smith, who, you know, with Ailey Camp, who was dancing the company, who is so brilliant at what she does. You know, some of the things she does, I can't do, right? So I think as a leader, one of the most important things is to know is not just what you perhaps are good at, but what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. And to be able to allow people to give them the space uh, to do their best work. And so that's kind of, how I look at it, but I'll tell you, I mean, my, I didn't have gray hairs when I started. Um, you do a fair amount of worrying as, as you can imagine. And then because listen, the main company, uh, takes up, you know, kind of 90% of my focus, right. In terms Mm. of choosing the choreographers, you know, choosing which works of Alvin Ailey to bring back um, to, you know, do a new production of uh, past, present, future, looking at choreographers who are really on that precipice, uh, when to bring them in, uh, looking at works that challenge the dancers and the audience in different ways, uh, having little surprises. I mean, all of those things, uh, choosing the dancers, um, you know, trying to be as supportive as you can, you know, um, it's a, it's a, a lot, right? And then all the touring and the traveling and the fundraising that is so important um, that I spend a lot of time uh, doing as being the face of the company you know, from the foundations and all of those relationships that we have, you know, with Ford Foundation, Mel, and all of these different, um, you kind of have to know all that, right? <laughs> and be able to 
uh, talk about why this company needs the support that it needs in order to do what it is that we do and how important and how to distinguish ourselves from the plethora now of dance companies, right? At the time when Mr. Ailey started, there were all of these dance companies and there was not a modern dance repertory company. Hmm. That was Alvin Ailey's vision. Now you see everybody's a repertory company, (laughs) but what distinguishes Ailey and how do you express that to an individual donor and to, so there's just so much that you're, you're contextualizing and thinking about and constantly, you know, I don't have the nine to five mentality, you know, somewhere in me, I'm always, worrying or thinking or having ideas or, oh, maybe we should do that. And it's, it's constant. But, you know, it's a wonderful labor of love, but it's a gift. It's a gift. And it's not always like sometimes holding it, it can be heavy, mm. but I get to hold it, mm. even if just for a little while, and then you pass it on. And it carries forward. I mean, it's it's amazing that this little bow-legged, big-headed kid who was, uh, I, you know, I was, when I was uh, born, you know, I was the youngest of two brothers, two sisters who had to go to foster care because my birth mother was not in a position where she could take care of them. Um, and when I was born, my great aunt and uncle just happened to come over and visit her. There I was in a diaper, you know, uh, as my grandfather would say, my great uncle, no bigger than a loaf of bread. And they said to my birth mother, let us take this child and raise him. Let us take this child and raise him. You know, you need the help. Let us do it. And they say they spent the whole day talking about it. And she finally let me go. And they took me in. They were already in their probably 70s, you know. And here they are with this kid. Their kids are grown, living in Liberty City and, you know, and the rest. And got me the braces for my leg. All of that happened. It just, and I don't know how I got there in terms of what I'm talking about. But there is something in me that has a different sense of what community means because of that mm-hmm. a different sense of what family means mm-hmm. a, a sort of awareness mm-hmm. right a kind of um what would you call it i think it's what makes me an empath right mm-hmm. because there was a part of me that if I look deep inside, didn't know if I belong, right? When you think about it, because other kids, you know, there's their mom and there's their dad. I mean, you know what I mean? Or something of that. And so when I would tell my stories, like, well, my great uncle, and then this is my cousin. Who's my, like, there was this sense of me that didn't feel I belonged. And that's why also I was quiet. Mm. I sort of, because what if, you know, 
They say, get out. <laughs> you don't belong. You know, I mean, you know, there's all those things, right? So I think that sense of finding people, being able to be empathic and know this teacher has something to tell me that I don't know. So I've always been able to find the people, right? My piano teacher. Um, and I say all this because in some ways, Ailey is a microcosm of my life growing up. Growing up. And I, I always have to tell this story. I'll try to be as, as uh, concise as I can. So I had a piano teacher, Miss Mew, uh, not Miss Muniz, Miss Hurd, Miss Juanita Hurd, black woman, you know, uh, you know, sort of big, bolsters type person. She wore these scarves, you know, elegant, you know. She was sort of in her era and not, you know, like she was in this era, but not of it. She smoked these little tiny cigarettes, you know, and she'd come over to teach me my piano lessons <laughs> with a cigarette in hand, you know, and I was like seven or eight, you know, <laughs> E, E. No, 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 E. Mm. <laughs> yes, whole, it was a whole character. I was so shy. So when she would raise her voice or push my fingers or anything, I would get teary-eyed and we'd have to stop the lesson and she'd have to come back next week because mm. you know, I was too emotional. <laughs> it was sick, right? Years later, I went to dance, you know, I stopped studying piano, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at Juilliard, you know, I'm, I'm really forging ahead and I came home to visit you know, for whatever holiday or whatever. And my mother said, you know, because I hadn't seen Miss Hurd in years. She said, you know, someone told me that they saw her, that she has cancer and that she's very ill. Um, so I decided to get in touch with her. And the first thing she said to me, and there's a lesson in this, is, oh, can you come tomorrow whenever and wash my windows on her house outside. I'm like, I got a full scholarship to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> Washing their windows. Doing, you know, but that was the first thing. She didn't say, how's Juilliard going, all that stuff. Wash my windows. Uh, and further insult, I won't be there, but there'll be a bucket outside and a rag. And so... I go, I've never washed windows outside. I mean, you know, I was kind of a little, you know. So I'm doing whatever I can do. Finally, a husband pulls up. She gets out of the back of the car. Now, this boisterous person that I was so afraid of in terms of her presence was because of cancer. Um, at this late stage, she was about this big. And I was still young enough to not have witnessed that before. Mm. And it, it frightened me, quite frankly. And I remember I tried to fix my face, I'm sure, so that you know how you do. You don't want people in. And she got out of the car. She looked at me. She said, boy, 
You don't have time to be looking at me. It's almost dark and you haven't finished these windows. I'm not going to pay you unless you finish these windows. That was it. She went in the house. Imagine that. <laughs> so I, I keep doing the windows and I finished and she gave me a couple of dollars and you know, she probably asked me about how Juilliard was going at that point. We had a little conversation, went home. So this became our cadence, right? When I was home, I would drive her to the bank. I would do all these things. She could hold on to my arm. She did not want people to know that it was hard for her to walk, you know? So she refused to use the cane. So you hold her arm as if we're just walking and talking. And when people would see her in the community who knew her, I miss her. And she's like, how you doing? I don't have time to talk now. I got to get to the bank. She just didn't let you focus on that. You know, one time I came to pick her up and again, falling, right? She opened the front door and somehow she flung around and went flying to the ground, still holding the door. It, it was like a giant falling to me. I help her up. She's like, all right, go ahead. Open the car door. We have to go. We're, we're late. We got to get over to this. Said nothing about it. Okay. Then she calls me up one day. She says, I want to go to JCPenney's or wherever to be shopping. She has, and at this point, she has to lean on things and stop and, and catch her breath. And this is really, and she has me try on all these suits. And every suit I tried on, she said, oh, that's a handsome suit. Let's get it. Let's get it. It's about five suits. I take her home, you know, boom. I thank her. I go home. I show my mother. And she called Miss Hurd. She's like, Miss Hurd, that was so generous. But why did you buy him five suits? She said, someday that boy is going to be meeting kings and queens and presidents. And he's going to need a suit. Fast forward now, years later, I'm artistic director of Alvin Ailey, first black president, President Obama. White House gets in touch with me. They didn't call anybody else, <laughs> me, and asked if I would accept the presidential the award, the Presidential Medal, uh, Medal of Freedom posthumously the highest civilian honor posthumously for Alvin Ailey himself. And when I got on that dais with Judith Jamison sitting in the front row with, you know, Masazumi Chaya, I'm sitting up there and this other plethora of celebrities, Meryl Streep and all of these people who are getting it for themselves. But I was the first up because it's Alvin Ailey and I'm standing in this suit with President Obama, the first black president, this kid, I mean, I started to cry. And I think he sensed the sadness and he took his arm. If you watch this on a, some kind of video, you can find it on YouTube. I think he just patted me on the back, but he knew the gravity of what I was feeling. But I was thinking of Juanita Hurd said, he's going to need a suit. <laughs> so 
So when you come from that, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Yeah. That, that, that took me through it. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's the one. That's Um, the one. Um, so I just have a a couple of more questions. Um, that was, uh, you know, what I love about that story is as beautiful as it is. So many of us have that story. You know, so many of us have that story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and I think that's that's why this word community continues to just show up for me. In even just doing research for this interview, starting mm-hmm. from, you know, your mother with the Afro Americans, you know, doing doing community work. Yes. Like community theater, mm-hmm. right? Like, what does it mean to be in community and have this artistic expression? That's not, that's not something to poo-poo. That's not any better or worse than Broadway, right? Like, right. it is an access point. It is a community exercise. It is, it is the 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 exercise of mirroring and reflecting back to ourselves, mm-hmm. ourselves in public, right? That is that is community. When I think about you know, even the Alvin Amer- um, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater organization. Mm-hmm. You know, we've both been there, funny enough, for about the same amount of time. And you know, to think of this—the largesse of of what's been created uh, by a vision of a queer black man—you mm-hmm. know—in America—that um, not only itself is a family, right? So many of the people you mentioned who lead you know, these verticals within the organization were once members of the company, right? So mm-hmm. not only is there a, a, a providence of, of the opportunity to perform, but also an arc of a longer career, right? Mm-hmm. In, embedded within it, right? It is made up of yes. the dancers, right? And, right. Uh, you know, I used to perform as well, right? So w- there is this kind of shrinking right or this uh limit to what one can be as a dancer and rarely is there an opportunity to extend beyond that and so even enfolded in this space is this hiring from within right this 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 ability to really extend and so i think that's you know really incredible and kind of now in 2022 you know to kind of cycle back you know you also guided this company through a global pandemic mm-hmm. you know yes. and i know that that came with its own challenges even when you opened right like having to have you know close half a a season when you know the virus like swept through the company even with all the protocols mm-hmm. um but there was also was even psychological things right with dancers coming back like as 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 an artistic director, how did you navigate that? I mean, that kind of unprecedented water. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, some of it was, I mean, Jamar made this wonderful work for the company called Holding Space. Mm. I had not really heard of that concept um, of holding space. I didn't know that idea or that that act of holding space, you know, and what that meant. But I realized that that's what we were having to do for each other, for each other, all of us, including me. Um, And then in some ways, it shifted the notion of even hierarchy, right? Because in a crisis, it's all, all hands on deck. And your hands are just as important as mine mine in this moment. And so through the dancers' creativity in terms of social media and how they were able to sort of teach us things we didn't know, you know, through, you know, so everybody involved, you know, the, the staff, everybody having to Harness their own harness their own creativity and reveal things that we didn't even know that they knew how to do, you know, mm. or they didn't even know. And then you go like, "Whoa, I didn't know. Oh, oh, that's a good idea." You know, so it was understanding that it was all of us, you know. Mm. That certainly, often, I mean, I get the credit right because well, certainly the weight of it is is certainly on my shoulders. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's on everybody's shoulders, but let's face it, you're, you're, <laughs> you're out front, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and so we really had to think about, you know what I, I kept thinking about, now I'm remembering, um, that, that quote that we always use by Alvin Ailey, that dance comes from the people and should always be delivered back to the people. Mm. And I kept thinking about that. And then I kept adding to it and not should always, but in always. And I started to think about, he wasn't just talking about, you know, when everything's going great, go ahead and deliver it back to the people. No, he founded the company in 1958 on the cusp of the civil rights movement. What a time to say, you know what? I think we need a dance company. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like people are like, you know, ready to throw rocks and, you know, fight. you know what I'm saying? And he's like, yeah. So that tells me something about what this all means and the notion that not just in good times do we, and then, the other thing, and I think a lot of us were, were saying this and hearing this and experiencing this, that, you know, that we were going to go on in spite of, right? That we're going to dance in spite of the pandemic. We're going to dance in spite of COVID, in spite of. And I thought, why does spite have to be a term that we use because we're doing something that we love? You know, there was so much mm. spite in 
the discourse in the country. We only have to go into all that. So then I started thinking about we're dancing because of, not in spite of. We're dancing because of our love of Alvin Ailey and his legacy and in the knowledge that this has to go forward no matter what for the next generation of dancers and teachers and everyone um, sort of coming behind. So then it became an affirmation as opposed to a sort of... um, I'm going to just ignore that and do this. No, I see that. I see what's happening all around me. I see the deficit. I see, and, it's, and, I'm, and, and I'm going to look at all of it. I'm going to look directly at it. The dying, the fear, the anger, the frustration, you know, the injustices. But because of that we're doing this that sense of cause that sense of courage i always say this is not the absence of fear not not for me it isn't courage is the presence of fear courage is the presence of fear that judith jemison is not going to be there and I'm going to have to speak <laughs> and then going out and doing it anyway. And so in that way, I think once you can start to think of what you're doing it for instead of what you're fighting against, that'll always be there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we know that when we jump, it's, it's, it's defying the floor, right? Defying gravity. Yeah, so don't worry about that. Think about how high you want to go. Right. Mm. And no, the floor will be there. Right. Always. Right. Gravity will be there saying, oh, not that high, honey. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) But, But we do it anyway, just hoping that the next time it'll be just a little higher. So all of that stuff that's embedded in in our practice as dancers right, is the very thing that we needed. The mm. mirror that we face, see something that we don't like and we try to adjust it. You know, that sense of, you know, maybe I can just do one more pirouette. That sense of focus, that sense of, you know, sort of defying gravity, that sense of push and pull, uh, that sense of tension, that sense of when to release, that lyricism, that storytelling. I mean, it's just all in what we do. And I feel that that's where we really leaned in and discovered even more so what we were made of and made for. Well, uh, I think that is a wonderful place (laughs) 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 to wrap this up. Um, Before I ask my last question, Robert, I just want to first thank you for hopping on um, here to the Institute of Black Imagination. And then secondly, just acknowledge this path and this work. I mean, not only your journey, the journey you even just took us on today was like, I went through everything. I don't I was on the I was about to mess up the mic with tears. Like I was, you know, misheard, you know, took me out. Ugh. Um, 
but you know, just acknowledge like the journey from being this shy soprano boy walking around in your kung fu suits, you know, in Liberty City, uh, you know, with kind of the world spinning around you and not really quite knowing exactly what it was, but 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 knowing yeah what it was. Um you know, and pushing past, you know, the naysayers, and even when you had to get picked up barefoot, you know, these these moments of seeming, you know, humiliation over and over again, but like just being quiet enough to hear, mm. um, and being willing enough to let somebody like hold your hand to the next stage, mm-hmm. um, is 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 the through line, is the story, is is that that li- you heard Alvin Ailey calling you at 13 and that's it, what that was yeah you know and it's something that i really rarely share you know but i feel like this is the kind of conversation where i would share you know because we're talking on which kudos to you on such of these different planes, right? Which I love. I love, I love this kind of conversation. And I usually don't share it because it sounds self-serving. You know, I certainly would have never shared it in my first couple of years because I'm not a person that, you know, I don't have a dream catcher by my bed, you know, like I don't get up and write things down. Like I had this dream, you know, I generally forget them. And maybe that's not a great thing, but I I feel the ones that I remember are for a reason. This is before I became artistic director. I had set a couple of pieces on the company, maybe. Um, And I had a dream about Alvin Ailey. In the dream. They just, I think, finished the new building. I don't think I had even been in the new building yet, the John Lyle Center for Dance, the first permanent home of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And in the stream, I'm sitting. You know how they have those little places you could sit in front of the, the building? I'm sitting. Right? Like the way the stairs are, that was a, a subway thing. You know, mm-hmm. coming, that was something like coming out of the subway. Alvin Ailey came out of the subway in a white shirt, brown pants, probably brown shoes. And I'm looking around because people are just do, doing their thing, you know, going in the building, not seeing. I'm like, that's him. That's Alvin Ailey. Like, I don't know if I verbalized, but I was in the dream. Like, I can't believe people. He sat by me. In this dream. And he said, Oh, what do you think of this new building? And I said, Oh, no, no, sorry, I got it wrong. It was the other way around. I didn't know what to say. He sat down. I said, Well, what do you think? I asked him of this new building. And he said, in that sing songy, wonderful lyric voice that he had, lyrical voice that he had, he's like, Oh, I think it's beautiful. You know, he could lean on a word and draw it out. I think it's beautiful. That's why I chose Judith Jamison, because I knew she would take the company to the next level. 
that was it. That's all I remembered. And it was so real to me that I told Sylvia Waters about it. And here's the funny thing. I had no idea that Judith Jamison had already started an inner circle conversation about, you know, stepping down as artistic director. So I'm talking to her assistant, who is now my assistant. And I came up to her office and I told her about the dream. What she, she said that the, <laughs> she almost turned white because Judith Jamison had just told her, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about Robert Battle. You know, Chai and I were talking about that. You know, like she had already said it. And there I was talking about this dream that I had, having no idea what was in motion. Just, it was so real to me. I had to tell somebody. Anyway, I just wanted to, to give you that. <sighs> when, you, when you said 13 and seeing that performing, Alvin Ailey was calling, talking to you through that. But yeah. So just to add like texture around that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Like this is, um, it's so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting to to witness, um, to to yeah, just witness, witness the arc, yeah. witness an arc, right? Because a lot of times, and and the thing, this is happening all the time, right? The universe is speaking all of the time, and I think we as human beings are so 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 locked into time and locked into the arc of our lifespan, um, and and distracted, right? That is that is what distraction is, right? It yeah. is to, it is it is, and, and and it's something that we witnessed when we all had to stop in the pandemic as well, right? That there were other things um, that were speaking to us, not in words. And I think that that's it, right? Like the intelligence that that we walk in and around at at any given moment, if you're just willing to be quiet enough. Um, and and what this conversation is and has been, uh, you know, is a gift because not we don't always get to the other side, right? You know, we don't. There isn't always the opportunity to, to look back and understand. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. But, but Mahalia Jackson says it right. You know how I got over. Mm-hmm. My soul looks back and wonders right. how I got over. Mm. Um, and and it's through community. Yeah, yeah. It's through community, and 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 then I'll say this last part. You know, and this is what I love, actually, so much about uh, the trans movement. That's happening mm. in uh, in our country and around the world is um, this pronoun shift mm. today. There. Yeah, and the what I like about it is you know one understanding that what manifests physically is is connected to spirit, um, and you know physical you know physical is like the the, the artifact of spirit. Um, but I think it gets at a deeper truth mm. because it's probably the most honest way mm. to refer to oneself. So I could look at you singularly as Robert Battle, 
and I could refer to you as, as him if, if those are your pronouns, but the most accurate description of who you are and how you have become is really a they, them. Mm, I love that. You know? Wow. Your great aunt, your great uncle, you know, your cousin, Miss Heard, right? Miss Munez. Like, Robert Battle is a they, them. Mm. In the truest sense of the word. Yes. Yes. As yes. we all are. Yes. Right? Wow. You know, even Alvin Ailey, like looking through your Love eyes, that. right? It's, it's, we hold so much more space, mm-hmm. you know? And in a way, it kind of goes back to your phrase of the pandemic, holding space. What does it mean? What does it mean to hold space? Yes. For them. For them. And on that note, Mr. Wow. Robert Battle. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get at it. <laughs> got chills. Got chills. Um, what? This is the last question. Um, if you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? Well, of course, you know, um, is the continued growth and success of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater that she continues to discover herself, you know, um, over and over and over and under um, and through, you know, because it's a living and breathing organism, if you will, right? That needs the space, right? It's like that idea that Maya Angelou said in the inaugural poem, uh, the horizon leans forward, offering you place, uh, space to take new steps of change but just that notion of the horizon leaning forward Hmm. offering you i mean just those words and just that image that we continue to be on that precipice right and that we continue to see that horizon leaning forward in 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 what we do as a company um and so that's really it, you know, that, that we continue to hold space, to use space, to navigate space with our bodies, with our intelligence that we don't even know we have, with our creativity so that we can tell our stories. Because when we do that, we change the world. That's it. The notion of storytelling is about, as Maya Angelou would say, keeping a toehold on the universe. Uh, wait, a toehold on the world, you know, so that we, you know, not flung in the hell. I mean, it's something, you know, it's like, that's what I hope. And that these, Borders, 
either imagined or real that we open those borders that prevent us from being 100% who we are. Mm-hmm. You no, know, that that's huge that there are many thems, right? And as Maya Angelou used to say, she used to tell folks, like, when you go into that job interview, you know, she was speaking at um, one of the wonderful Black colleges. She said, now, when you go into that interview, you know how she speaks, (laughs) you know, when you go into that interview, you take me, you're going to take your aunt, you're going to take so and so, because somebody's going to say to you, oh, my goodness, wow, after the interview, they're going to say to somebody, oh, my goodness, she has such charisma. And she said, that ain't charisma. That's all those people that she brought with her. I just thought that there was something in that that was so, like, you know, homespun Mm. in the way that Maya can do the homespun thing with such pinpoint intelligence and spirituality that you can almost miss it because Mm -hmm. it's like charisma. She's all those, look at all those people with her aunt May and, and and Keisha. She's there. Take all those people with you. And so that's what I think about when I think about like, you know, how I hope that the community continues uh, to rise uh, and continues to break down those borders uh, that attempt to keep us apart, apart from each other, more importantly, apart from our true selves. Well, there you have it, brother. Well, thank you for wearing the suit. Thank you for wearing the suit. Thank you for wearing the suit. This has been a beautiful, beautiful conversation. Thank you, Robert. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. It was a good Thank you. This was was great. Did you feel that? I have to be honest, both Robert and I needed a cocktail after that high vibrational conversation. I was actually sweating there at the end. We love engaging with you all on Twitter and IG and now LinkedIn. So don't be shy. Repost this episode and let us know what you think. But don't forget to tag us in your post at Black Imagination. Did you love today's episode? Maybe you should uh, leave us a review over on Apple Podcast or whichever platform you're listening to. Be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch other episodes on our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. As the late great choreographer Martha Graham states, some men have thousands of reasons why they cannot do what they want to, when all they need is one reason why they can. Stay curious and keep dreaming.